You know, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is a little bit empowering right here, right now. <laughs> Do you know that, uh, that finally I have an opportunity to be here to share with you just for a, a little bit? Some of you who are visiting probably don't know what the normal thing is uh, here, uh, and that is for all these guys to, uh, to really rag on me because I'm the old guy around here. And so they do that all the time. Now, uh, that doesn't bother me. I just, you know, I just let them have their fun. Uh, if I was a mean, vindictive kind of individual, I probably would uh, take a page right out of uh, Ronald Reagan's playbook. Some of you here remember when Ronald Reagan was uh, uh, debating Walter Mondale for the office of president. And what Mondale had kept talking about uh, how old Reagan was and he just kept making reference to his age. And uh, President Reagan was probably the, the, the best at the one-liner comebacks. And he said, you know, if, uh, if my opponent will stop making reference to my age, then I won't make any references to his youthfulness and in- inexperience. <laughs> Will, Will didn't make any reference when he spoke a, a few Sundays ago to just how old I was. Uh, and so you're the only friend I think I've got in this whole outfit. Uh, and then Scott, bless his heart, he's just gone through the car wash too many times, so I just kind of <laughs> overlooked that. And uh, that brings us to 0% chance of rain sitting right over here, you know. I think I probably got soaked as much as I would have taken a shower yesterday uh, at 0% chance of rain. And so I was talking to one of the guys, uh, I, I won't uh, uh, call his name because I don't want to embarrass him, but his initials are Blaine Mullis, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> I asked him, who you suppose uh, uh, thought up this idea of, of setting up everything out in the rain? And he said, I don't know, leave it to a Georgia fan, I guess, is <laughs> what, you, what you have to do. And so, so I, I thought, uh, well, yeah, you know, Reed knows how much I love him, and we like to tease uh, each other and... Uh, uh, he knows that, uh, that I, I've said many, many times, the best thing that's come out of Georgia was I-85. <clears throat> and so, uh, so I, I just, I'm not going to sit here and talk about them like they do me. Uh, and, and that kind of brings me back to the preacher, you know. <laughs> he, uh, he, lots of times, he's, uh, he rags on me, too, about... Being the old timer, you know, and I just say, but you know, let him go on and on and on, and that's what I thought he was going to do two Sundays ago. He just went on and on and on and on. I thought he wasn't going to ever quit. In fact, it, it reminded me of the the joke my dad used to tell all the time about the visiting uh, revival preacher who would come in on Monday and start the revival services, go Monday through Sunday, and and every night that he would preach. From, uh, uh, from Monday night all the way to Saturday night, you could almost set your watch to his uh, time. He'd, he'd finish in about 18 to 20 minutes. And so uh, Sunday morning came around, and he went on and on, and he preached for an hour and 45 minutes before he finally finished. And so after the service was over, the, the home preacher said, Look, i got to ask you a question. Every night during the services this week, you, uh, you preached for... Uh, for 18 to 20 minutes. And today, you preach for an hour and 45 minutes. What's, what happened? He said, well, let me tell you the truth. Every time I would get up to speak, I reach in my pocket and I pull out a lifesaver and I pop it into my mouth. And when that lifesaver melts, that's when I know it's time to quit. 
He said, well, what happened this morning? He said, this morning I got hold of a button. <laughs> so Marcy, please check his shirts and make sure he doesn't have any buttons or anything in, in, uh, that, that needs to be fixed. Listen, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn over to, uh, to Mark's uh, Gospel, chapter 6, uh, and we're going to look at verses 30 through, uh, through 44 today. And I'm going to read those, uh, those verses, and then we'll pray and, and get started uh, for what little bit of time I might have left uh, here in this, uh, in this service. Uh, beginning of verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then, uh, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. And by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wage. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them uh, to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in the groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to sit before the people. Does that remind you of anything that we experience here on a regular basis? Like today at the end of the service? And, uh, and then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also decided that two fish, uh, divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000, not counting the women and the children. So it could have been 10, 15,000 people or more. We don't really know just how many. Mark wrote this book. He was also known as John Mark. He was the son of a widow in uh, Jerusalem who, the Bible says, opened up her house. If you look over in Acts, uh, uh, Gospel, uh, Acts uh, book, uh, I think chapter 12, verse 12, uh, it talks about her opening up her, her home to have a prayer meeting or have a, a, a church meeting to, to be there in, uh, uh, in their house. And so she was a, a, a great Christian believer. He wrote this book to, uh, to encourage all of the... Um, uh, the believers in Rome, because the Romans had begun at this time to persecute the Christians. And so he wanted to, uh, uh, to write it, and he wrote it somewhere between uh, A.D. 50 and A.D. 65. And, uh, and so uh, uh, it, it was a book that he depicted Jesus as being the, the suffering servant and also as the Savior of the world. And so I, I want to begin today by, by sharing with you a story that I heard uh, it, it seems at one time there was a young fellow who surrendered a call to the ministry, and uh, he knew he get, needed to get some training, so he went off to Bible college and wanted to be a, a, a preacher. And so after he uh, went to school and graduated and, and uh, he came out of school, his uh, home church decided they wanted to give him an opportunity to be able to bring the, his first message as a, as a recent Bible college graduate. 
And so they offered him the chance to be able to come and, and preach. And so he accepted that and began to pray and ask God to lead him to the, uh, to the passage of Scripture that uh, he wanted him to, to bring. And so he led him to Mark's gospel, this feeding of the 5,000 uh, that, uh, that we read earlier. And he began to pray and, and uh, he began to make some notes and write down what he wanted to say uh, in his sermon and, and uh, uh, commit it to memory. And, and so the day finally came for him to, to give his, um, his presentation. And so uh, he gets up in front of the people. And he remembers that he was taught in his Bible college classes that sometimes preachers have to be somewhat dramatic in their presentation. Sometimes they need to do something in order to dramatic in order to... Uh, to uh, uh, garner the, the attention of the crowd of people who's out there that, that they're speaking to. And so he gets up and he gets behind the pulpit and he slams his hand down on the pulpit and he says, Jesus Christ took 5,000 loaves and 2,000 fish and fed five people. And he paused for a second and he pointed to the crowd and he said, could any of you do that? Well, as you can well imagine, the crowd broke out in, uh, in roarous laughter. And uh, the young preacher boy, he didn't have any idea what in the world happened. Uh, what he had said that made them uh, uh, think something was so funny, so hilarious. Until finally there was an old fellow in the middle of the, the seat uh, back here in the, in the, the middle section. He, he, he raised his hand and that set the, the preacher boy back on his heels. And he looked at him and he said, now how dare you presumed to do something that only our Lord Jesus Christ could do. You're guilty of blasphemy. And so then the fellow decided to go ahead and stand on up and explain to the young boy exactly uh, what had happened, what he had said. And so when he had done that, uh, he was so embarrassed and so humiliated he couldn't say another word. So he just went back over there and he sat back down, dejected and embarrassed and in disgrace. But his home church was uh, very loving group of people, kind of like some of, most, some of you, and, uh, and uh, uh, they rallied around him and, and hugged on him and loved on him and told him, said, J- just shake it off, forget about it. People are, are subject to making mistakes all the time. And so you go back home and you work on that sermon again this next week and you come back the following Sunday and you, you bring it again. And so he finally convinced him that that would be the thing to do, and so uh, he went back home and he, he rehearsed his message several times and finally got all the statistical information correct. And uh, he came back and, and the next Sunday he, he thought, well, I, I'm going to do exactly like I did before and, and be uh, somewhat dramatic. So he slammed his hand down on the pulpit again and he said, Jesus took five loaves and two fish and he fed 5,000 people. Now, could any of you do that? Well, that same old fellow raised his hand again. And uh, the young preacher boy said, How can you presume to do something that only our Lord Jesus Christ can do? And he said, I tried to do it with the leftovers from your message last week. (laughs) Well, the story of the five loaves and the, the two fish, as we read today, is from Mark's gospel. And yet, uh, it appears, the story appears in all four of the of the Gospels. Uh, it must be pretty central because uh, it, it does appear in all of uh, uh, all of the Gospel writers thought it was worth recording. And, and it, uh, I, I think, was one of the central episodes in Jesus' uh, ministry. Uh, it happens just after 
Jesus hears about his cousin, John the Baptist, being murdered, beheaded. And I, I can imagine Jesus being somewhat upset about this. Uh, number one, because uh, he, uh, he was very uh, close to, to John. And uh, he uh, thought a great deal of him because he was a, a great prophet of God. Not to mention the fact that he was uh, related to, uh, uh, to Jesus. Uh, Jesus had been performing miracles and, and teaching to the crowd, but he decided, as the Scripture says, to pull away from them just a little bit because there were some other things he wanted to, to teach uh, his disciples. Some things that they needed to hear, needed to understand, but yet he could not say in front of all of this great crowd of people. And so he wanted a little teaching time with them. Uh, number of things that they needed to know. And so they go up to a mountain to get away. But the Bible says that that isn't to be. You see, the crowds have had a little taste of the miracles, and they wanted to see more. Now, they're intrigued somewhat by this, uh, this prophet, this teacher, and they wonder if indeed he could be the promised one. And uh, you need to remember that Israel had been under uh, occupation of the Romans, and they wanted to be free. Civil and, <clears throat> and religious writings tell us that, that uh, before Jesus came and after he went away, there were uh, many uh, Messiah pretenders, uh, of which many of the power of Rome. The crowd wondered maybe this was the one. And so they followed. And I think it's important for us to know the time of year when all this took place. Uh, it's springtime in Israel. The uh, spring rains have come around the Sea of Galilee and, and watered the brown hills and, and uh, grass was green now and uh, flowers were blooming. It was, a, it was a wonderful time of the year. It was also Passover time in Israel. You remember Passover was a great uh, Jewish uh, festival uh, like Easter would be for us. And that meant the Jews were celebrating their liberation <clears throat> from the the Egyptians' domination. And when uh, God caused all the plagues to come upon the Egyptians, and then uh, they left and got to the Red Sea, and God caused the Red Sea to part so that they could walk across on dry land. And then he took care of them for over 40 years in the, uh, as they wandered around in the desert, feeding them every day uh, bread from heaven as it rained down manna that they could collect and, and eat. The great prophet Moses had told them that one day there would come a prophet like he was. And these people's imagination were looking for that promised prophet like Moses. And they thought, surely this could be the one. If you look on John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus says, Believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. And what was Jesus' reaction to the thousands who had showed up? Look at, uh, let's look at verse uh, 34. And verse 34 says, When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed spiritual food for the spiritual uh, things that they were inside them that they, uh, uh, they needed to take care of. He also taught them and he healed them. Maybe this was indeed the miracle worker the miracle prophet that uh, Moses wrote about. Maybe, just maybe, they might be finally free from the domination of the Romans. So they followed him, and they crowded around him, but, but it's getting late, and nobody has any food. And remember, there was no Parkway Plazas, no uh, McDonald's, and no 
Domino's and no <clears throat> Burger Kings and no uh, barbecue restaurants to take a call for, for takeout or delivery. As a matter of fact, uh, the crowd is bigger probably than most of the villages that were nearby. And besides, they would not have the financial resources in order to be able to go and buy enough food to, uh, to take care of them. So what is Jesus to do? Look at verse 36. What does he say? Send the people away, they said, so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, what, what do you suppose Jesus, how, what he thought about a, a comeback like that? I, I can just sort of picture him sitting there shaking his head like, uh, boys, you just don't understand. You just don't get it, <clears throat> do you? You just don't get who I am. I tell you, that's a, that's a great response, guys. Uh, send them all away. Just dust your hand, hands off and say, hey, it's not my problem. You know, they should have brought themselves something to eat. Send them all away and let them find uh, uh, their own food. You know, when the going gets tough, he probably said, <coughs> the tough just kind of drop back and punt, you know. So uh, they wanted to get back to that special teaching that he had talked about. And Jesus tells the, the disciples in, in verse 37 that they should find something for the crowd to eat. If you look over in John's gospel version of this story, <coughs> uh, Philip said to Jesus, uh, how are we going to buy bread so that people can eat? And Jesus said this in order to test Philip. Philip replied, why, it would take more than 200 denarii, more than 200 days of wages, and, and even that wouldn't be enough to buy bread to feed all these people. And Jesus' response was, look around, see what you can find. Check the crowd out. And Andrew found a young boy with five loaves of bread, little barley loaves, and two fish. And brought, now get this, brought the boy, the barley loaves, and the fish to Jesus. Jesus took the bread. He looked up to heaven. He blessed it. He broke it. He passed it to his disciples who handed it out to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And there were 12 baskets left over. I read somewhere in one translation that the word satisfied was, could be translated gorged. What does it mean to be gorged with food? kind of reminds me of what happens to most of us on Thanksgiving dinner, right? We just eat and eat and eat until finally we say, Man, I can't eat another bite. If I eat another bite, I might just... It, what? It's right. I might just explode. I might just pop. I said that one time and somebody said, Lord, please stop eating because we don't want to clean that up. <coughs> so anyway, they ate and were satisfied. And that brings us to point number one. Sometimes Jesus uses people. Sometimes believers. Sometimes interested people. Sometimes unbelievers to carry out his purposes well the story is told over and over again but it doesn't end there uh, it continues a few days later Jesus was again out in the wilderness and a large crowd of people followed after him of 4,000 men plus women and children and this time seven loaves of bread and a few fish were found and once again Jesus took the bread 
looked up to heaven, blessed it, broke it, passed it out to his disciples. And they passed it out to the, to the people. And everyone ate and was satisfied. And there were seven baskets of pieces of fish and bread left over after feeding the 4,000 plus. And then I think comes the final twist to this, uh, this story. The final intrigue, if you will, to this little saga. Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and they sailed back across the, the Sea of Galilee. And when they reached the other side, the disciples began to discuss quietly among themselves out of the earshot of Jesus. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he asked them, Don't you men get it? Don't you understand? Are you so hard-headed? Are you so hard-hearted? You just saw the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets left over. And you just saw the feeding of the 4,000 plus with seven baskets left over. Don't you get about who I am? Don't you get about the, the abundant generosity of God? Don't you get that God will take care of all of you and, and all of the needs that you might have? Don't you get it? Even after you've seen and would bear witness to the miracles that's already taken place. And that brings us to point number two. Jesus oversupplies our needs to show his love, his compassion, and grace toward us. The interesting thing about this is that, that uh, the disciples had just gotten back from Jesus sending them out, giving them the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick and to do all kinds of miraculous things. They'd just gotten back from that, and now they seem to be helpless in this particular situation. These guys just didn't get it, at least not while Jesus Christ was still with them. Now, please indulge me just for a moment as I try to, uh, to uh, share another miraculous thing that took place. After months of hard work and years of scrimping and saving, they finally come to the time when they could open their own restaurant. Reb, R-E-B, and Jackie, J-C-K-A-Y, man and his wife, uh, was ready to open their own place of business. All that was needed was uh, their building a business permit and so they could open for business the next day. Well... During the night, Hurricane Hugo came in with its winds and rain and destroyed power lines and businesses and homes and uh, all were destroyed uh, 200 miles inland into the North Carolina town that Reb and Jackie lived in. <clears throat> and so they got up <clears throat> during the light uh, when it uh, became daylight and, and they made their way to uh, our place Restaurants, what they named it, only to find that it was totally intact. And a deputy sheriff pulled in behind them as they got out of their vehicle, and he was told, they told him that uh, uh, their place and the fire station next door and a service station down the road was the only three uh, places in that part of town that had any electricity. So they immediately called the, uh, the building inspector. And, uh, and they... Uh, wanted him to come and issue their permit so they could open for business. Well, because of the outage of power and the damage that was done to, to lots of buildings in the town, he was unable to go. 
and issue them a business permit so that they could open for business. Well, no business permit meant no business opening. So the only thing that they knew they could do was to give the food away. So they told the deputy sheriff, tell your co-workers and other emergency people and power folks, linemen, that we're going to be giving away free bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches and free coffee for anybody who wants to, to come by. Soon, firemen and police officers and power folks and other construction workers were uh, coming into our place to uh, get those free BLT sandwiches and coffee. And when Reb and Jackie heard about another restaurant scalping people by charging $10 for uh, a couple of eggs and a couple of strips of bacon and a piece of toast, they uh, knew the only thing they could do was to make a big poster-sized sign, put it in the window that said, free BLTs, free coffee for anyone who wants to come by. That's homeless people, street people, anybody who wished to come in, travelers. And so uh, something began to happen in that restaurant. All of a sudden, people started to clean the counters and sweep the floors. And folks went into the back of the restaurants and took over the dishwashing from uh, Jackie. Others began to help Reb on the grill. And uh, having heard about what was taking place at our place restaurant from the local radio station, people from neighboring towns that had not been too badly hit by the storm began to bring food out of their freezers. Stores and dairies sent over chicken and milk and foodstuffs of all kinds. <clears throat> and that long day kept going. And all of a sudden, the first cups of coffee and BLTs had sometime, somehow stretched to 16,000 meals that day. The restaurant's small stock of supply increased by 500 loaves of bread and and cases of mayonnaise and 350 pots of coffee and bushels of, of uh, produce. And that brings me to point number four. Sometimes God's miracle is in causing community to happen. You see, I think the miracle here in this account was that community happened. Somebody reached out, brought all that they had to Jesus and shared it until there was an abundance. The disciples, through the grace of Jesus, had to learn to lead by example. What we have in this story, a story that's so important, apparently, that it's uh, uh, recorded in all four of the Gospels, is the first example, I think, of paying it forward. And it was paid forward to the point of abundance. Now, do you think Jesus could have done all of this without the little boy's lunch? Well, of course he could. If you look over in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, the account when Satan took him out into the desert to, uh, the, to tempt him, what did he say? Command these stones to be made into bread. The devil knew that all Jesus had to do was to say the word and the stones would turn into bread. And so he could have done it by himself. But he didn't choose to do that. See, God throughout human history has often worked through, primarily through people. You remember even parting the Red Sea over in Exodus, 
chapter 14. God had Moses to hold up his staff. See, God doesn't expect us to just uh, uh, sit back and watch him do all the work. He expects us to play our part, to make our contribution. And that brings me to point number five. God expects us to participate and contribute to his plan, not try to come in and, and take over and change the plan. And I think there's the rub. See, we're supposed to make our contributions. And if we do, sometimes there's some common mistakes that we oftentimes make. The first mistake is when we, like Philip and the other disciples, try to come in and take over the, the plan. God asks us to play a role, and we come in and want to begin to direct the play. Uh, we sometimes uh, uh, want to say, Lord, uh, you really, surely you don't mean you want us to do this. Uh, I, I know that whatever we're doing now would be so much more practical for us to continue to do. Or, Lord, you know, this is how we do things around here. Just move aside and let us show you exactly what it is that, uh, that we uh, are to do. Uh, or, or, God, this, this thing, I, I'm comfortable with doing it. But uh, uh, it, it'd be just so much better than, than what you uh, uh, are, are sharing with us to, to do. I, I don't know about you, but I think it sounds kind of silly when you say, say it like that. But if we're honest... All of us perhaps have, if not said it, we've thought it sometimes uh, in, in our life. Sometimes we, as believers, tend to do that kind of thing uh, in the life and ministry of the church. Uh, we think that the plan is for us to be and to do what we've always been doing. And so we quit listening, and we are still working on old instructions. Sometimes we think the plan for the church is to be like the church across the uh, on the other side of town or in another state, as if different churches and different people didn't have different jobs assigned to them in the kingdom. In either case, we come to God with a, uh, with a list of what we think our programs in church uh, ought to be. Now, what should we take away from this story? Well, I think the story tells us that God, if we let him, will shatter our pint-sized expectations of what his followers can do if they would just simply learn to bring him what they've already been given. What's the phrase? Little is much when God is in it. When Christians are willing to offer their lives sacrificially, relinquishing their hold on whatever God has given them in terms of their time, their talents, and their resources then God will use these ordinary things to create something extraordinary. And that brings us to point number six. God will use small, ordinary things to create extraordinary things. See, as a Christian, we must never believe that, that our resources are just too small or too little to serve God. The Bible says God delights in taking the humble seemingly insignificant person and using him or her for his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As Christians, we need to be reminded that our problems are never too large 
for God to handle. I'm sure that Andrew probably was wondering, what in the world are we going to do with five little barley loaves and two fish? Now, of course, theoretically, we believe that God has the power to be able to multiply whatever he wants to multiply to feed whoever he wants to feed. But the problem comes in when we are faced with a practical outworking of that theory, we tend to doubt that God might want to meet all of our needs. And so as a Christian, we must bring our lives to God in the spirit of obedience and sacrifice. No matter how insignificant we think our gifts or talents are. And when doing so, we can expect God to do far more with them than we can ever imagine. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Also, I think Christians need to understand that God not only wants to meet the needs of his children, he wants to, to lavish his children with spiritual blessings, even to overflowing. What does the fifth verse in Psalms 23 say? My cup runneth over... Or overflows? So, the question I guess we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Are you ready? Are you? I can't answer that question. Are you ready to give all that you have to the Lord Jesus Christ? So he can take it and multiply it and use it for his honor and for his glory. So that his kingdom might be advanced here on the earth. Whatever you can offer, how little it might be. Some may say, well, I'm just old. You know, little is much when God is in it. Some might say, well, I don't have any money. I don't have any talents. Little is much when God is in it. So, whatever you can offer, God can use it to bring honor unto himself. But the question is, will you do it today?